You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Thank you. Please be seated. Thanks so much. That is so overwhelmingly kind of you. And uh, Pastor, thank you. Uh, what a joy. Um, we just got uh, a few minutes together this afternoon. It was just wonderful to, to share. And, and what, a, what an incredible experience this morning. And just appreciate the opportunity to be with you. We appreciate your pastor's leadership and friendship so much. You and Tanya mean the world to us, and uh, uh, it's amazing. Just as we've talked, our churches are very, very similar. Um, hey, guys, how are you? Good to see you. <laughs> um, how similar our churches are, and I just, I feel like God is doing something really, really uh, special in this day. I, I've come to the conclusion, um, at my age, I'm <laughs> three, um, uh, that somebody said, uh, my generation is not going to reach the next generation. And I think that's true. The next generation is going to reach the next generation, just like I've had the opportunity to reach my generation. But the great blessing is when somebody is in my stage of life that I have opportunities to knock down roadblocks and uh, maybe clear the playing field, run, run a little... Uh, uh, a few blocks for the, uh, in football terminology, for those that are in the next generation. And I see your pastor, your leadership team as uh, next generation champions. They're reaching this generation. And uh, man, that is exciting. And What's wonderful about that from my perspective, again, our churches are very similar. Just a couple of things before, I'm, I'm going to say something before I start talking. Um, uh, but um, a couple of things. One, this church is blessed to be intergenerational. It's blessed to have the ministry of Chi Alpha so embedded in the church. And those two things need to go together. Those two things need to go together. We need the generations to come together because we can help each other. And if we're not connected, and you guys all, all know this, I'm just sharing it by, by way of, of just encouragement. If we're, if we're not together, we're going to be in big, big trouble because there's so much richness that we uh, gain from each other. And it goes both ways. We're just in a study of, we do a uh, Wednesday night Bible study. We've just launched into Romans. And I was reminded again, Romans chapter one, Paul's talking to the church in Rome. It's the only church that, uh, the only letter that he wrote that was to a church that he hadn't been part of founding and never been part of the, the church in Rome. It looks like people came directly from Pentecost and went back to Rome and started the church. Paul had nothing to do with it. But he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, and he says, I can't wait to be with you. I, I'm, I long to be with you because I want to give you a gift. I want to impart something to you. And then he pauses. It's almost like uh, he realizes what he just said, and he, and he says, what I mean is I want to I receive from you, and I want to give to you because he knows that richness of sharing. And I see that in, in your church. And I believe, and I'm... Uh, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I really do believe that God is doing something really special here at LifePoint in raising up 
not just individuals in the next generation, but teams in this next generation who are going to, should Jesus tarry in his return, have impacts on whole communities. And I believe God's doing that. I'm, man, I'm so excited about uh, the school that's starting. I'm, I'm out of this church. I'm, I'm excited for what God's doing and the vision that you have. Uh, it, it just sounds a lot like the kingdom of God. So it was great. Uh, it has been great to be with you. Great to fellowship with your leadership team. Uh, Tony and Kayla, thanks for hosting us for lunch. What a precious, just, oh man, we are so blessed. So blessed. So thanks. Ah. <sighs> I want to talk a little bit this evening about um, a topic that I don't really talk that much about. We'll get to it in just a moment. But leading up to that, uh, I don't know whether you've ever, have you ever read a text in the scripture and, and thought to yourself, I know that I've read this before, but it sure seems new. Ever had that happen? It happened to me uh, just this last week, and I, I'm going to share a little bit about that. But in anticipation of opening up the scripture, um, here's what I've noticed in, in the Gospels. The Pharisees had issues with Jesus. Have you noticed that? They just did not get along very well. And in particular, they didn't like the people that Jesus associated with. In fact, the people that Jesus associated with actually had a name that the Pharisees called them. They called them the people of the land. The people of the land. They were, they were the, the people that the Pharisees tried to avoid. And the Pharisees were really careful about obeying all of the law and then some. You know, they added, I think, I don't know how many different laws they had, that they added to the Old Testament law, and they, they were very specific and very legalistic about adherence to those laws. And some, sometimes it just got silly, the, the things that they would do. For instance, uh, they weren't supposed to travel more than a certain distance from their home on the Sabbath. And so one of the tricks that they played on themselves was that if they decided that they needed to go further than this short distance, a few hundred yards from their home, they would load up their things uh, the day before Sabbath on a cart and items from their home, lamps and different furnishings and furnishings and that kind of thing. And they would load them on a cart and they would drive the cart so far and then they would drop something off, and they would say, well, really, home is where your lantern is, so we're, we're still good. And they'd go into a few hundred more yards, and then they'd drop something else. They'd set a chair in the road, or, and off they'd go, and they'd go as far. It was, it was just this legalism that, that looked like it was really, really spiritual. And then, in addition to that, they, they not only prided themselves on being very careful about obeying the laws that they had many of them that they had made up, but they also made it a point to distance themselves from the people that didn't do it. And so what I've learned over time is that when you want to distance yourself from someone, it's most effective if you can call them a name. And they called them the people of the land. And then they said things about the people of the land. It came across this, this uh, 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 saying that the Pharisees had about the people of the land. This is what they would say. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, 
Can't, can't trust him. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Don't make him the custodian of charitable, charitable funds. Don't accompany him on a journey. That's what they said about the people of the land. Man, you, you just wouldn't want to be one of the people of the land, would you? You can't, can't hang out with any Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees knew that it was inappropriate, unacceptable for them to host or be hosted by any of the people of the land. That's where Jesus got in trouble often with the Pharisees. You know, Jesus had a a statement we're going to read in just a moment. When he said, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. You remember Jesus saying that? It was a twist of a phrase that the Pharisees had. The Pharisees, before Jesus came up with that saying, the Pharisees had a saying, and they said, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God. That was their saying about the people of the land. They hated sinners. They also defined what a sinner was. And they actually sadistically hoped that the people of the land would be obliterated by God. So into that setting, Jesus shared this illustration. And it's absolutely fascinating to me. I want to give you a minute. Turn over to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to read the first seven verses, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I'll give you a moment to get there. So we've got this cultural setting. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. And we pick up this, this story. It's not really a parable, but it's an illustration that's really similar to a parable. So Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners people of the land, were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so, Jesus told them this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And verse 5, and when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents then over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. In, in this culture, the shepherds had this really challenging job of caring for the sheep. They were responsible for the welfare of their flocks. There weren't fences uh, in the pastures, and uh, much of the pasture land was very close to Uh, uh, very desolate areas, very dangerous areas, and sheep were easily lost. They'd they'd wander off. And many of the flocks of the time were communal flocks, so there would be holding pens within the confines of a village. And so uh, shepherds would take the sheep out when, when they'd head out in the morning, and you remember Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice, then my sheep know my voice. You remember that, that teaching in John? Uh, what Jesus was talking about was that there would be three or four or a half dozen different shepherds that would be part of these communal flocks, and they would stand at the, they would, they would uh, 
gather them all in the same pen in the evening, and they would stand at the door of that pen, and the the shepherd might have a whistle or a little call that he had for his sheep. He would he would whistle or he would call, and he'd just begin to walk away. And his sheep would follow him because they recognized his whistle. And the other sheep would stay in the pen until the next shepherd came, and he'd give them his whistle or his call, and they'd follow him off. And shepherds of the flocks, if the flocks were completely safe, the shepherds would arrive home on time. They'd come back before sunset as as expected. But once in a while, there'd be a shepherd who lost one of his sheep. And he would stay out. And because the flocks were communal, the entire village would wait with anticipation to see if that shepherd came back with his sheep. And when that happened, when they saw him, the entire community would break into this celebration because sheep were their livelihood. It was really, really important that that that, that shepherd got back with his flock of sheep because they all had this co-ownership. It was part of who they were. And Jesus captures, in, in this little illustration, Jesus captures the imagination of all of these Pharisees, all of these scribes who are these religious leaders. He tells a story, and he tells a story that they would all be familiar with. They've all participated in this. They've all looked over the horizon just to to see that shepherd coming back with the sheep that was lost, and they'd all been involved in these celebrations. And then Jesus surprises them at the end of this story with this statement, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance, that the Pharisees did not anticipate him flipping the script. They were, com- they, they were caught up in this story. Don't you just love Jesus? I mean, miracles, awesome. Uh, the lifestyle that he lived, incredible. Thank God that he sent his son into the world to save us. And the way that he could tell a story. So he pulls in all of these religious leaders who had said over and over and over again, there's joy in in heaven over one sinner who's obliterated. (laughs) And Jesus pulls them into this familiar story. He flips the script on them. And he says... Just like that, just like you rejoice when that one sheep that you think was lost, just went like when you rejoice when that shepherd shows up that you weren't sure he was going to make it back, just like you rejoice, that's what heaven really looks like when one sinner repents. And then he has this second surprise. And I, I can't believe that Jesus packs so much punch into one statement he says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. And it's obvious to everybody, even Pharisees, that everybody needs to repent. What Jesus is doing here is really just masterfully using sarcasm. He says, you know, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than than 99 of you that apparently don't need repentance. 
Because apparently you don't. And in this, this one sentence, the way that Jesus sets them up, he's, he's calling out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their lack of the word we've been talking about today, the, their lack of authenticity. Because they were pretending to be authentic. They were pretending to be close to God. And they'd actually fooled themselves. And that's what Jesus was pointing out. The mindset of the Pharisees was that there are two things you have to do to be close to God. One is strict adherence to the letter of the law. And the second is distance yourself as far as you can from people who don't think like you think. That's how you're holy. And we all know, in retrospect, looking back at this, we all understand that you can do both of those things and still not have an authentic relationship with God. Right? Nod your heads or I have to go back and start all over again. <laughs> we, can, we can do that same thing. We can, we, can, we, can, we can fool ourselves into thinking that, that, listen, if I just obey all the rules... I'll be all right with God. And especially if I, what was it that we used to say? Uh, something about, uh, I don't drink and I don't chew. And I don't go with girls that do. Uh, I didn't used to say that. Other people used to say that. But it's that, it's, it's that mindset. I, I don't do bad things and I don't hang out with people that do bad things. I don't even like people that do bad things. I really hope that they'll be obliterated. And, you know, we're not, we don't verbalize that, but, but here's, here's the thing. We can, we can obey the rules and distance ourselves from people that don't obey the rules and still not have an authentic relationship with God. And we get mixed up sometimes. We think, well, if I go to the right church or if I obey all the right things and if I act a certain way, then that's, that's how I earn God's pleasure. And certainly God wants us to live holy lives. But just doing those two things, obeying the letter of the law, and staying away from people that don't obey the letter of the law do not provide an authentic relationship with God. So what provides an authentic relationship with God? This morning, we talked about authentic relationships with people, and we said humility really is the key to authenticity. And I think similarly, repentance is the key to a re an authentic relationship with God. That it's repentance. And repentance, uh, it may involve tears and it may involve emotions, but, but that's not the essence of repentance. The essence of repentance is that we have a change of mind that leads to a change in thinking, that leads to a change in attitude, that leads to a change in values, that leads to a change in the way that we live our lives. It starts in our minds. It starts in the way that we think, but it ends up in the way that we live our lives. 
And just as we said that humility is that key to authenticity with others, repentance is the key to authenticity with God. Humbly, humbly coming before God and saying, God, your ways really are higher than mine. And sometimes we look at repentance and, and we see it almost as a word that we don't want to talk about anymore in church because repentance has this negative connotation. But listen, all of us that have come to faith in Christ understand that there was a place of repentance that initiated that relationship with God. And if we hadn't come to that place, we would not have a relationship with God. And sometimes we think that because we had that initial repentance, that's all that we need to deal with. That, that's the only mention that we need to have of repentance in our spiritual lives. But the exact opposite is true because repentance simply says, you know, I was thinking wrong and God, you've changed my perception. Has anybody had your perception changed lately? Yeah, that's where repentance starts. And repentance says, you know what? My, my understanding has changed because my understanding has changed. It's gonna change my attitude. It's gonna change my values. It's gonna change the way that I live. And that's repentance. And that's how we have an authentic relationship with God. We say, God, your ways are higher than mine. You know things I don't know. And you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna hitch, hitch onto your wagon because you know things I don't know. I'm gonna submit myself to you. I'm gonna repent. It's more than just initiating our life with God. I believe that in order for us to walk in authenticity, there has to be a lifestyle of repentance. A lifestyle that says, you know what? I don't know the right way to go. God, you know the right way to go. And the, the frightening thing about repentance is that there are only two people who know whether I've repented or not. And it's God and me. And what's even more frightening is I can fool myself. I want to walk in that kind of humility before God that, that says, you know what, God, just keep me honest, keep me pure, keep me true. God, I repent of my ways. I turn away from my ways and I turn toward you. And there are all kinds of benefits of repentance. Obviously, forgiveness is, is a primary benefit of repentance. If it wasn't for repentance, we never would know the forgiveness of God. We'd never know a relationship with him. But as I look at the scripture, there are other benefits I think sometimes we overlook. And this evening, I, I just wanted to take a few moments to put repentance in its right light. Because so often we see repentance as something that's so painful, and sometimes it is painful. But we see it as so painful and something that's a, this obligation that we have to God that we, we forget that on the other side of repentance is life. That's where, and, and that's the only way to an authentic relationship with God. So when I repent, the scripture says that I experience God's kingdom. In fact, in Matthew chapter four and verse 17, we read there the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and teach saying, what? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven's at hand. What, what he's saying is, hey, you want to access the kingdom of heaven? Repent. 
change the way you think, and you'll have access. He says the kingdom of heaven is near. And for New Testament people, uh, they, they didn't see, you know, we, we say, well, did he mean the kingdom of heaven, or did he mean the kingdom of God, or what exactly? What, the way that, that people in the New Testament... I, we had a couple weeks we'd go into all of this, but the way that the people in the New Testament understood heaven was not just that God lived in heaven distant somewhere. When, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray and he said, pray this way, pray that the kingdom of heaven would come on earth. They, our Father who lives in heaven, they weren't, as a kid, when we did the Lord, said the Lord's Prayer, I thought, our Father who Art in heaven. First, I thought his name was Art, but um, <laughs> but I thought he's way up there, and so we're kind of throwing this prayer up. But the way that the New Testament people understood the heavens was they understood that the heavens, yes, were, the heavens were were distant, but at the same time, they were imminent, and and. They were saying, our Father who dwells in the heavens, what they were saying was, our Father who's all-powerful, yes, but our Father who's imminent, our Father who is in the very air that I'm breathing, our Father who dwells in the very heavens around us, holy is your name. When we repent, we experience the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven exists wherever Jesus is king. That's what it means to repent. We make Jesus king. And we can experience the kingdom of heaven if we'll just give up rulership to our own lives. Because when I give up rulership and I make Jesus king, I have entered into a kingdom of heaven experience. So the kingdom of heaven is accessible through repentance. We see also the gift of the Holy Spirit is accessible through repentance. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. I'm just amazed. When you start looking at these things, and you see how they're connected in the scripture. But uh, now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. This is uh, Peter's just preached the first New Testament sermon, and people were pierced to the heart. They were convicted and said to Peter and the rest of the, of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? And Peter said to them, what did he say? He said... <laughs> This is such a kingdom principle. He said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the, what? For the forgiveness of your sin, and what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, repentance isn't just this initiation of a relationship with God. It's not a negative thing. It brings the experience of God's kingdom, it, it precipitates the presence of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul said it, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, God's patience toward us, not knowing what, that the, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. God's got a good plan and it involves repentance. It's how we have an authentic relationship with him. And the last thing, which I think is just made for this evening, repentance brings times of refreshing in the Lord's presence. Acts chapter three and verse 19 says, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that, in order that what? In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
We experience God's forgiveness in a fresh way. We experience his presence in a fresh way. How do we access that? I'll tell you the way that we don't access it. We don't come into God's presence and say, God, look at me, how good I am. I don't think we even experience his presence in, in that refreshing kind of a way when we're just, you know, ready to charge hell with a water pistol and, you know, take authority and... and I think we experience his presence when we say, God, I'm so <laughs> wired wrong. And I, I, I want to give up what I want, and I, I repent of that. I turn away from that, and I turn toward you. You know, a, a big part of what we understand to be repentance is confession. And that word confession actually means to say the same thing as confess, with, speak. So it's, I speak with. And so often we, we, we think of confession as, as uh, uh, you know, sometimes we think of it as, as a, a, a positive confession, or I don't want to say anything negative. But really what it means is, I'm going to agree with God. I'm going to agree with God. So when I confess my sin, I'm saying the same thing that God says about my sin. Scripture says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous so that he'll forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a great, great promise. We're saying the same thing as. We say the same thing that God says about our sin. We say the same thing. We agree with God about our forgiveness. We agree with God about his kingdom in our lives, we agree. This is what, what repentance does. I agree with God about what he says about his gift of the Holy Spirit. I agree with God about what he says about times of refreshing. I'm just going to agree with what God says. So often we're tempted when the enemy comes and he says, hey, you have done X, Y, Z, and you know, choose your sin, whatever it is, and the enemy accuses us. What's our natural response? Our natural response is, no, I didn't. That wasn't me. That, okay, maybe I did it, but I was having a bad day. Anybody? Yeah. Uh, or, or I think this morning we mentioned, I'm, I'm Irish, and that's what Irish people, I'm not actually Irish, that's why I pick on them. Uh, that's what Irish people do. We, it just runs in my family. We just yell at people, and then it's over. We blow up, and then we apologize. And isn't, isn't that what we do? We tend to kind of bargain with God and argue with God, but God calls us to confess. He calls us, so when he convicts us of sin, we can, we can say, yes. And then we can say, but by your grace, I'm going to say the same thing about my forgiveness. I'm going, to, I'm going to say what God says about my situation. That's what repentance does, and that's what brings the presence of the Holy Spirit. It brings his refreshing. It brings forgiveness, and it brings an authentic relationship with God. Hmm. He's good. He's good. Are you ready to come, team? Good. Let's, let's do it. Poor Tony, I just shock him. So this evening, what I would love to do, why, why don't you stand with us? I was talking with Pastor today and just... Um, our desire for this evening is that we would just have moments of refreshing, moments of restoration. We'd spend time in the Lord's presence. So 
I'm going to just ask you, as, as the band begins to lead us, we enter into a time of worship, I'm just going to ask you to come and just find a place here. There's nothing magical about an altar, but there is something really powerful, I think, when we, when we kind of put feet to our prayers, feet to our, our, our commitment. And I would just invite you to come. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to you this evening, just begin to confess along with God what he's saying about you. It may be that uh, he's pointing out an area that needs to change. Let me just encourage you, don't, don't fight that. Just say, God, yeah, you're right. I, I don't want to argue. I don't want to plead my case. I just want to agree with you. And then go on. And say, God, I also want to agree that you're the only one that can forgive me. You're the only one that can change me. And I believe you're changing me right now. Say the same thing with him about where you're at. Let's enjoy those, just a time of refreshing in his Holy Spirit. So would you come? Just come and find a place. You can stand, you can kneel. Just come and find a place. Just invite everybody. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.